Well, good morning. Thank you for having me here today. It is the second Sunday of Advent, a time of hopeful waiting and anticipation before we celebrate the coming of our Savior at Christmas. So it is good that you are here. It is good that you have welcomed me here to be with you. Uh, this is where we should be, singing and celebrating our Savior together, using the best hours of our Sunday to dwell on God's Word together. So I hope you can use this day to encourage someone you might happen to bump into, uh, especially if they're new, and especially if that new person is me, and maybe even more, especially if I need a ride to the bus station right after this. So if you take nothing else from the sermon, uh, take that. Well, as Mark said, my name is Micah Bragg, and I'm the campus minister for RUFI, RUF International, at Columbia University. And in that role, I'll do a lot of what I call one-on-ones in any given week. I'll, uh, I'll book a room at an office at Columbia, and I'll set up shop there, and then my AI secretary will already have me booked for a bunch of one-on-one meetings, like an hour checkup with students, and they'll come in one after the other. And yes, if you don't have an AI secretary booking your meetings for you, you are falling behind in the times. But don't worry, it's not as scary as it sounds. But then students come in, they sit down and talk one after the other, asking their questions, And it it really is probably the most productive thing that I do with my week, the thing that gets the most good done, that I appreciate the most and that the students appreciate the most. And I'll often begin these meetings with a few uh, diagnostic questions. How are you? How are you doing? What have you been thinking about recently? Uh, What have you been concerned about? Because if you're going to know someone on a deeper level, you need to know how they think, what they're thinking about. And if you really want to know how someone is doing, regardless of their circumstances, rather good or bad, you need to know what they are spending their time thinking about. So this morning, I want us to go through some of those same diagnostic questions. What is the content of our thought life? What's your own inner voice sound like? What has it been recently? What do I think about when my mind goes from focusing on a specific task of whatever I'm trying to accomplish and reverts back to its default thoughts? In short, what is the content of my thoughts? Now, some of you are saying, oh, I I run that kind of diagnostic program all the time. Because you're intensely introspective, and you're kind of constantly in your own head. You're constantly saying, oh, what am I worried about right now? Uh, Am I happy enough right now? Am I enough? Uh, Am I doing well right now? Do I look good in this situation? Do other people around me think that I'm succeeding? And you're constantly kind of running these kind of thoughts through your mind. And you're intentionally introspective. Uh, And then now others of us uh, don't think that much. And I mean that in the nicest way possible. But this passage is for, for all of us. Because in it we get to see what Paul desires for his pupils, the Philippians. And specifically we get to see the mindset he wants them to adopt. What does the thought life of the Christian look like? So our passage is, it's considered one of the most... Uh, beautiful and poetic passages in the entire works of Paul. Uh, And that's not really an official poll, but the people I've talked to about this sermon agreed with me that it really is an incredible moment in Paul's writings. And there's a lot here, so let's dive in. So I'm reading from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And I've lost where that would be in your pew Bible, but it's up here as well. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, 
Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. So there's a lot here, and we're really only going to, to nick at the surface of what a passage like this one has to offer us. But my goal for us is the same goal that Paul has for his readers. Paul is demanding that the Philippians change their mind. The very content of what you think about and how you think about things should be absolutely transformed by your experiences with Christ. The passage is nestled in Paul's hopes and expectations for the Philippian congregation. He expects them to grow, and he expects them to grow in this way. So let's follow this passage through three steps required in changing our minds. First, remember what you have experienced. Second, look to the interests of others. And third, take on the mind of Christ. So first, remember what you have experienced. There's a, kind of both a, a positive and a negative side to this. For some of you, that idea that Scripture intends to change your mind, the very content of your thoughts, is actually very relieving because you know how miserable your thoughts are. You know how dreary the conversations with your own inner voice have become. You've experienced that. Again, how do you talk to yourself? I, uh, I recently read an article titled The Dark Side of Self-Improvement that traced the history of bosses. And it started with the invention of the modern boss, kind of late 1800s in, in the factories, and they're kind of like a work floor bully, kind of looking at the workers and yelling at them to stay, keep up the pace and whatever they're putting together. And then it followed that into the information economy uh, with the bullpen-style desks in the center of the room, and then the bosses are kind of lined around the edges of the office space with glass windows so that they can kind of look out and, and check on the productivity of all the workers in the middle. But then it went on to fit our current time and the increase of working from home in which more and more you are your own supervisor, your own boss. And a good day, not just in work, but also in life as a whole, is defined by your ability to get the most productivity out of yourself, to pull productivity out of your own self. Philosopher uh, Alexandra Schwartz writes on self-optimization. And she says, it's no longer enough to imagine our way to a better state of body or mind. We must now chart our progress, count our steps, log our sleep rhythms, tweak our diets, record our negative thoughts, then analyze the data, recalibrate, and repeat. You see, society used to be based more around external motivators. But now, more than ever, motivation is created internally. It's built up in your own thoughts, and it's achievement-based. It's based on your own willpower, your own self-optimization of yourself. 
So you have to keep your head in the game lest you fall behind. You have to use your thoughts as a way to pull yourself into doing what you would rather not do. And this is the world we live in. We're surrounded by self-help resources, giving you tips and tricks to squeeze every last ounce of productivity out of yourself. Now, my issue here is not with productivity. I'm often not that productive of a guy. And I very much so need to uh, eat my frog each morning or get my hardest task done by 11 a.m., or it's just probably not going to happen. Uh, but my issue here is that we are trained by the world around us to focus on ourselves so much that we've even become our own supervisors. The goal is to reinvest our time and energy back into ourselves, to continue to level up our own individual person. And it does push us. It pushes us right to fall right into the temptation of selfish ambition. That's kind of the default. It's a culture that requires an extreme amount of thinking about yourself, testing yourself, judging yourself. You have to stay in your own thoughts. So where does your mind go as soon as you wake up? Is it super focused on your own ambitions? And is it motivated by your own sense of achievement, the thing you want that you don't have? And I'm going to make the case here that that's not a good enough motivation. That even achievement is not a good enough motivation. But Paul, what does Paul tell his followers? He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He's asking them, what have you experienced, Christian? Have you tasted the goods of Christianity? Have you seen the immense source of encouragement and comfort that comes from participation in the Spirit? It comes from the affection and sympathy in the Christian community. Now, Paul is asking them in a, in a more of a rhetorical sense because Paul already knows that encouragement, participation in the Spirit, affection and sympathy are already present in the congregation at Philippi. He knows, despite the threat of persecution that hangs over them, that they have experienced these good things and that these past experiences, they become his reasoning for why the believer should take on the Christian life of the mind, the others-focused mind. So this is coming at motivation for why you think about what you think about from a completely different side. This isn't the, the positive mentality, the, the power of can. It's not achievement and ambition. It's better than that. And it's certainly more fun than that. It's the motivation of comfort and encouragement that you have already experienced the comfort and encouragement you've already experienced from Christ. So the obvious question to ask ourselves here is, have I experienced any of these goods in my faith? Have we? I don't think we need to be some zinned out, super experienced and righteous veteran Christian believer to recognize the attractiveness of Christ, to recognize his comfort. In fact, you might be here exploring the claims of Christianity for the very first time, or maybe even exploring is kind of too far, hard of a too too serious of a word. You're more just observing your Christian th friends do their Christian thing. But even if that is your level of experience with Christianity, you may still be able to testify to the comfort and encouragement that comes from a Savior like Christ. If He is real, if He really did come down to earth for us, like we're about to celebrate at Christmas, a humbled Savior who chooses to love you. 
and likely he is what attracts you to the faith at all. So Paul pulls them in to reflect on if these qualities are present in their own minds. And then he asks them to make that their motivation for transforming their minds. And this is, this is key. What motivation should you use to change the content of your thought life? You joyfully remember the goods of Christ. This is how Paul begins his advice to these believers he loves. If you've experienced any of these things, if you have any of these experiences at all, he's engaging their emotions, not just their sense of duty and achievement. And by doing so, he's saying, he's saying this is where the good life is. In fact, your unity in mind about this will complete my joy. This is where Paul gets his own joy from, he says. This is the kind of mindset you should want already because you've already experienced these goods. So you have to remember them. Remember what you have experienced. So now, point two, how to get the Christian mindset. First, remember what you've experienced. And second, look to the interests of others. If the natural default of the human mind, and especially in our time, is to constantly think of oneself, to constantly compare and value your worth against those around you, or even against your own standards for yourself, and then constantly working to calculate, am I pleased with myself? Am I happy with myself? Do others respect me? Do others like me? Am I achieving what I should be achieving? If this is the default content of the human thought life, then what is Paul's alternative? What does the matured Christian mind think about? And Paul's answer is, it thinks about others. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, the idea that the mature Christian mind thinks about others might seem quite straightforward to you. Uh, but I want to emphasize to you just how much more joyful the others-focused mindset is. That it's far more joyful. It's far more fun. And when I or we, uh, when I or we abandon it, when we go through a day completely self-absorbed with ourselves, kind of stuck up in our own thoughts, we really are shooting ourselves in the foot. We're shooting down our own joy. So you read this passage, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, and you think, yeah, okay, I, I realize I'd, I'd better do that. And we read it as if it's some sort of drab command towards an uninteresting life. A life, uh, an existence where you spend all of your free time volunteering to babysit someone else's children, which you really don't want to do. And here I want to spark joy against this idea that unity with one another, that service for one another, squashes unique individual expression. In fact, the most interesting people are the ones who are the most interested in others. Uh, the English writer Alan Watts said, it is obvious that the only interesting people are interested people. And to be completely interested is to have forgotten about I. I think we know, I think we know that's true, right? Have you ever been caught up in a conversation with someone else who continues to go on and on about, with, about themselves? Uh, and it's painfully wearisome because it's not really a conversation. There's far more to discover by training yourself to be genuinely interested in the other. It's interesting to be interested in others. And to add to that, we naturally derive enjoyment out of inviting others into what we are interested in. So for me, this is, 
I mean, you, you could use the example of seeing a beautiful view or something and then saying, you know, whoever is by you, you're always like, come look at this. Look, there's a rainbow out there. Come see it. Like what you find delightful, you naturally, you get enjoyment out of inviting someone else into that. But, uh, but for me, it's, it's more YouTube videos. I'll watch like a really great YouTube video and then I'll force my wife, Layla, to come and watch it, even if she's just not interested in it at all. But I'm like, you have to watch this. Because we naturally get an enjoyment out of pulling others into what we're enjoying. Kind of on the, the flip side of that, uh, around the time my son was born, so we had just had our first, he's only four months old now, little boy, uh, I happened to be listening to a few podcasts and reading a few articles that kind of had an evolutionary biological perspective on life. You know, like for these writers, everything kind of boiled down to your biology. And... Uh, and they would often present this idea that the primary purpose of the family is to replace the parents with a new and younger generation, with, with younger offspring. And that that's the goal, the end goal. Keep the species alive by replacing yourself with your child. And at the time, I'm waking up in the middle of every night, uh, which I'm not very good at doing. Uh, but I'm waking up to a crying baby. And the thought is, am I just raising my own replacement? sacrificing my own joy and happiness, sacrificing my own sleep in order for someone else to have it, literally putting this small human's interests and well-being above my own. Kind of an ugly and dark uh, thought for a new dad to have, but in my defense, it was, it was 1 a.m., which in my opinion is just the worst time. Your body's kind of like, it, it realizes you're trying to sleep, but it hasn't gotten any of the benefits of sleep yet. So it's 1 a.m. when I'm having these thoughts, and then, you know, eventually the sun comes up and it kind of renews you. Uh, but that was the thought. Am I just crushing all of my own freedom and joy in life in order to replace myself with this little crier so that he can have, <laughs> he can have my freedom and joy, that he can have it? And, of course, once the sun comes up and you're in a healthier headspace, the answer is, is no, of course not. I'm inviting this child into the very best things of this life. I'm going to show him my favorite things. We're going to watch the movie Gladiator together. <laughs> it's going to be great. And I'm, I now get to be interested in the things he's going to be interested in. I mean, that's, that's already happening. So right now it's just his toes. But I get to be interested in what he's interested in. I get to share what I love most with him. And the service does not take away from me. It adds to me. And the unity of the other's focused life does not squash the beauty of diversity. It allows you to share it. The unity of the other's focused life, it doesn't squash diversity. It allows you to share it. Now, a child is an easy example, but this holds true for the people in your life. There is immense joy in the Christian life because the Christian life is others-focused. And of course there's joy because it means you don't have to constantly worry about yourself all the time. You don't constantly have to compare. You're, you're too busy enjoying other people, helping others. Your, your thought life isn't miserable that you got last place in the race. You're still just genuinely kind of happy for the person who got first place. Meaning, in a very serious way, you kind of always win, or you already have won. So bringing others into your joys and living into their joys and their challenges is central to enjoyment itself. And Paul freely admits that his own joy is made complete by the unifying of these Philippians as they think and care about one another. 
So finally, I'm going to take us to step three, take on the mind of Christ. Uh, How interesting is it that Paul's description of his desire for the Philippians naturally leads his own writing to become Christ-focused? He tells the Philippians, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So he tells the believers to imitate Christ, to imitate Christ's mind, the mindset that he displays in his own actions. And then Paul is just off to the races. He begins to recite this hymn, which clearly declares that Christ is God, uh, and it ends with praise. There's a lot to pull out of this portion of our text, uh, but let me just say this briefly. Paul here is not only telling us that Christ is of the same substance as the Father, uh, a declaration of Christ's divinity. He's not only pointing us towards the other-focused action of Christ's ministry, that he would empty himself, take the form of a servant in order to exalt God the Father. But he's placing others-focusedness at the very core of who Jesus is, at the very core of who God is. Why does Jesus do what he does? Why do we have the advent of Christ taking the form of a servant? Because he is praising the Father, who then turns, in, in his turn, the Father then turns and elevates and praises Christ. So, I mean, that is what the Christian doctrine of the Trinity is. The Trinity, God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, three persons, one God. It's a community of others' focusedness. It's a triangle of, throughout all eternity, God has been an others-focused God. Christ himself is constantly thinking of others. Throughout all eternity, past and eternity forward. All because, and because the others-focused mindset is at the very core of who Jesus is and what he does, you can also trust that he is thinking of you. Because that's who he is. He's an others-focused God. And that's in the very nature of the Trinity, in this dance of the Trinity, that before creation even existed, God for all eternity has been an others-focused God. That's why it is a Trinity. Something absolutely unique to Christianity, by the way, and something that my international students, that is often one of the key kind of points that they're either confused about or then if they they take a step farther into the faith, it's one of the key things that they get excited about, this idea of the Trinity, this uh, this truly others-focused God. So you can trust that he is thinking about you because that is who he is. He takes on the human likeness for you, this others-focused mindset. So to end, let let me just push the challenge to you now. Follow your Savior. The mind of Christ, the mind of God, is an others-focused mind. And it always has been, through all eternity past and future. And now we, the recipients of Christ's grace, are going to spend all of our time thinking about ourselves? Completely absorbed with our own problems and selfish ambitions? No, how can we? How can we? When you have a God like this, how could we do that? So how do you change the content of your thought life? How do you change what you think about? Remember what you've experienced, the goods, the comforts, the goods of Christianity. Look to the interests of others and take on the mind of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the ability to come here to celebrate your advent, uh, to anticipate what will be 
And we pray that our hearts would be changed and we pray that our minds would be changed. We know that even our inmost thoughts, which you see and are a part of, are not directed where they should. And we know that it's impossible to not have constantly be uh, under a barrage of, of self-conscious thoughts of our own. But we want the mind of Christ. We want it and we ask for it. And we know only you can make that transformation in our hearts and in our minds. So we come to you now on this Sunday and we open ourselves up to you. And then we open ourselves up to each other, that we want to care for one another, that we want the joy of caring for one another, that we want to experience uh, what it is to, to rejoice in those around us and to have an enlarged heart and an enlarged mind about those. And then letting our own worries and anxieties fall to the side because we don't need to be focused on ourselves you are the one who thinks about us. You care for us. And because of that, we can come to you confidently. We thank you. Uh, we thank you for your word and what it gives to us. And uh, we pray in your blessed name. Amen.